The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, um, so let's, let's get going with what we're going to be talking about tonight. Over the last several weeks, we've been, you know, obviously we've gone through, you know, most of the Old Testament and, and getting from Malachi, which is the people are have come out of exile, out of Babylon. They've come into the land. They've kind of reconstructed something of a temple that they can worship at in Jerusalem. But it's not what Solomon's temple was by any stretch of the imagination. And the people are dealing with really living under the rule of other people. And so they've been, you know, under the rule for some time. And what you tend to see happen through Jerusalem during this time period of roughly... 400 to somewhere around, well, up to 70 A.D. really, but, um, but during that period of time is a, a, a lot of turmoil and a lot of really wrestling with how do we actually function as a people, as the people of God, when we're under the thumb of pagans. And so, you know, Israel has not been this dominated by anybody until the Babylonians conquer them. And once the Babylonians conquer them and take them out of the land and then they eventually get released and put back, they never have control of their land again, really. And even if you want to go to current times, really to this day, they don't really have at least full control of their land, though perhaps more control than they've had. And so there is this, you can, you can just sense, and you can, you can probably understand how there would be a crisis moment of faith, really, when you're going, okay, we're God's people, we live by God's law, we're supposed to sort of, we're, we, not sort of, we are distinct from pagan nations, and we keep ourselves distinct. Dietary laws, we keep ourselves distinct. In, in the ways that we shave our beards, we keep ourselves distinct. The clothes we wear, and what the clothes are made out of, and how they're made, and how food is cooked, and all of those things, we remain distinct from other nations, and yet, my next-door neighbor is from another nation, right? You can see where that would, and, and, and the governor, and the, the ruler, and the king, and the, the mayor, or the whomever, they're all pagans, and all the rules that they enact are all pagan rules. So what happens if that happens, right? I mean, we're, we're kind of finding out a little bit, right? Like, you know, used to, there was a day when uh, your mayor w- went to your church, you know, or something like that, and, and now you're like, the mayor wouldn't be seen at church, or wouldn't be caught dead at church. Not, I don't necessarily mean our mayor, I just mean mayors in general. It's not a political, it's not something that's politically favorable to be uh, in that situation. So, you know, how do you function as the people of God in that situation? And so, you have these various groups that are rising up that are either, one, trying to get rid of the the people that are over the top of them, or to assimilate with the people that are over the top of them. And then, so then you have intertribal conflict amongst the Jews. And so we've seen several different parties that have risen up, and they've all kind of sought to do a little bit of different things. We saw, we looked at the Pharisees a couple of weeks ago, uh, and now, and last week we looked at the Sadducees. And so the Sadducees, during the, they, they came up obviously during the same time when Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, kind of sort of created, more or less, or initiated the revolt uh, of the Maccabees, when the Jews revolted 
against uh, the Seleucids and push back against their rule. And so the Sadducees kind of sprung up. The Pharisees sprung up too. The Sadducees, though, were different than the Pharisees in that the Pharisees were really particular not just about God's Word and what we would call the Old Testament. The Pharisees also were really particular about the traditions of the elders. So there were traditions that sprung up, some of them as a result of the law, as a result of the reading of the law, because we see that we're not supposed to touch things that are prepared, no food that was prepared by the hands of pagans. Therefore, we wash our hands before we eat because we might touch something that pagans touched in the preparation of our food, and then when we touch our food with our hands that touch those things that pagans touched, then we consume those things that then pagans had touched, and it's the same principle as them cooking your food, right? So we wash our hands. So the Pharisees were particular not just about the law, but then about all the things that had connection to the law and all the traditions of the elders that had arose. Well, the Sadducees come along and they go, we really like, you know, the word of God we're okay with, but the traditions, they can take a hike for all we care. And what that, you, some, to some degree, you kind of go, I get that. That's good. I would rather adhere to the law than the traditions. But that also meant that the Sadducees started to kind of go, yeah, we can kind of saddle up next to the Greeks and sort of be buddy-buddy with them, and none of that really matters because that's not what the law is really designed to do. Anyway, where the Pharisees develop these traditions to kind of make sure that we preserve the law. Does that make sense? There's a, there's a tension there where there's got to be a balance, and, and they're trying to strike that, and the Sadducees certainly don't do that. And so they obviously uh, interpreted the law of Moses. They took that uh, more literally, probably, and exclusively than the Pharisees did, uh, and rejected the tradition of the elders. They also considered that human beings were fully responsible for their own decisions and actions. They, there were, in other words, there was no fate. There was no things that were inevitable. There, it was all, everything good or bad that happened was a result of your choice. These were decisions that you made, and these are the consequences for them. But what they also rejected was this idea that there is life after death, that there is judgment before the throne of God. And I think the two are definitely connected, right? <laughs> if you kind of see that everything's a result of my good or bad choices, then you inevitably have to see how many bad choices I make, right? Because <laughs> this world has fallen if you just you open your eyes to just a second. And if everything is a result of your choice, then all the fallenness around you is also a result of your inevitable choices, and so if you are responsible for all of those things, then God forbid I ever have to stand before him and give an account for them all on Judgment Day. So let's dispense with that. So they got rid of that altogether out of their theology. There's no, there's no time where we stand before God, no resurrection of the dead. Um, they, obviously a part of that was, look, we're being ruled by Gentiles, and so we kind of just need to accept it and saddle up next to them. Because they've rejected the traditions of the elders, which kind of kept them at arm's length from the Gentiles. And so they kind of saddled up next to him. While the Pharisees saw that there were some things that God had determined and some things that were a result. There's kind of a middle position, I guess you would say. The Sadducees said, no, humans are fully responsible and accountable only to themselves. Um, so those are, those are two groups that you're really familiar with, right? You've seen Pharisees, you've seen Sadducees. Uh, they're replete through the New Testament. 
so many examples of Pharisees and Sadducees, and they kind of play the role of the villain in the New Testament. Now we're going to move to a group that you've probably never heard of, except that I've mentioned them a couple of times, but you've probably never heard of them before, mainly because they don't show up in the New Testament. The New Testament never mentions the Essenes by name. You will never turn to a passage and see the word Essenes anywhere in the New Testament. However, Josephus, who is a first century historian, historian, he's a Jew, he is basically one of the few providers of all the information that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, is Josephus. Um, So he tells us more about the Essenes than any of the other groups. So we get a lot of information of the Pharisees and Sadducees in the New Testament. We get nothing about the Essenes. But Josephus, who is preserving the history, tells more about the Essenes than any other, than any other group uh, that he talks about. So there's even a gate in Jerusalem that is called the Essene Gate, probably because there was a community that lived right outside that gate. That was their gate. Um, so they definitely have a strong presence in, uh, in the land at the time. In fact... There was no one location that we can point to that we say that's where the Essenes are from, that's where they came from, but it was common knowledge that the Essenes were spread throughout the land. They had a presence in every city, all right? In every city, they were there. But they tended to avoid a lot of the larger cities. Now, I'm going to say this, and I just want to prepare you. I, I suspect by the end of tonight, you might identify with the Essenes, all right? I I suspect, now call me crazy, maybe it doesn't happen, but I suspect you might. They they tended to shy away from the larger cities. Now, why do you think that was? I mean, it's on the screen behind me, of course, but what? Yeah, Yeah, am I the only one that's noticed that when you get closer to bigger cities, there tends to be a different way of life? Can we describe it that way? Right? Now, big city... That term, big city, is all a matter of perspective, right? Some people might call Tuscaloosa a big city. Some people who live in Tuscaloosa would say, no, Birmingham is the big city. People who live in Birmingham would say, New York City is the big city, right? So, but, it, but as you go up and as you, you know, gather a larger populations on top of each other, there tends to be a lot more uh, promiscuity, a lot more sin, let's just call it that way, that tends to congregate. Amen? Right? You, you see that? All right? So the Essenes see that too. That's not just a, a modern phenomenon. That's been going on for years. The Essenes see that too, and they tend to shy away from a lot of the larger cities. Though they probably are in Jerusalem a little bit, but they see the habitual lawlessness that's going on in larger cities, and so they, they tend to be uh, more country folk, so to speak, I guess, if you want to call them that. And the Essenes obviously come into greater focus and this, is, this may be where you have heard of them before, because in 1940, or somewhere in the 1940s, I think it was actually 48, if I'm not mistaken, or 49, there was a large collection of previously unknown scrolls near the ruins of Qumran along the Dead Sea. You know these probably as the Dead Sea Scrolls. As the story goes, not really sure how true it is, but... Uh, the story goes, a Bedouin Arab took a rock and threw it into a cave. And when he threw the rock into a cave, he heard the shatter of a clay pot. 
and as he went in there to investigate the shattering of this clay pot, he found this cave had multitudes of scrolls in them, a papyrus, some kind, and he took them, sold some of them to the marketplace to make some money off of them, took others, and they made shoes out of them, and did all kinds of other things that people will do with paper when they find it, and uh, we, don't, we don't have this, so we can reuse this in a number of different ways. And, uh, and scrolls tend to, like papyri like that, tends to have some uh, kind of a leathery type feel to it, it tends to be, so makes a good shoe, I guess. And so <laughs> they did that, so there's no telling, you know, what's out there. And I don't know, uh, we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I don't know how many of you have been to Israel or to the near the Dead Sea, caves of Qumran, have you seen this? Uh, it's a desert, deserted area, and you just walk on this little trail, and you look out there, and they're like, we discovered them in this cave, in this cave, in this cave, but there are literally thousands of caves out there that have never been touched. There's no telling how many scrolls are out there in that area. No telling. All right, so, you know, if you decide you want to fund some archaeological research one day, that might be a good place to start. Um, so... But the point is that the Essenes were probably the ones located in the Dead Sea area of Engedi that took great pains to copy down the Old Testament and preserve it in, uh, in, on these papyri and store them away. And they cared to do that. And I can't, I can't overemphasize how important the Dead Sea Scrolls are to just the Old Testament. There are large chunks of the Old Testament that were completely missing until the Dead Sea Scrolls. Or, chunks of the Old Testament that we had maybe 9th century A.D. was the, the earliest copy of you know, certain texts that we had until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Which gave us a copy of the text 900 years before what was there. Uh, updated our, you know, to, uh, plugged in some holes that we were missing. A lot, lots of different things that have happened because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so when people, uh, where this comes down to, to us, where we would typically see this, is in the KJV only, like groups, you may know, you may have friends in the KJV only. Um, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls have helped us where the KJV was, did not have the benefit of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Early, the you know, most recent translation they had, or the, the earliest, I should say, translation they had, or copy they had of the Bible would be the 9th century A.D. And this is going much closer to the original source that these texts are. So, it, it, it really does matter, and it's very helpful, but the Essenes, if you have heard of them, that's probably where you've heard of them, that this group, okay? So they, out there, in, or at least part of them out there in the caves of Qumran, copying, copying down, uh, you know, texts from the Old Testament, taking great pains to make sure that we have those and preserved for their community, and, and turns out for ours as well. So that's like how, that's the history that we know of from the Essenes, all right? But let's go into their beliefs. This is where I want you to just really think about what it is they believe. And you, you can tell where I'm headed just by the ends of these paragraphs here in our notes. The Essenes were known for their communal ownership of property. 
It was law among them that those who come to them must let what they have be common to the whole order. So they had no appearance of poverty or excess of riches. Everybody was kind of on an equal playing field. But everyone's possessions were intermingled with everyone else's. Okay, pause right there for just a second. Because you hear communal ownership and your mind may go, some of you, to communism. Is that where you're going? I see one, amen, was headed towards communism. This is not communism because this is not government coercion to communal ownership of property. You got it? That's the big difference. There's nothing wrong with a group of people getting together and deciding we're going to hold everything in common. All right? That's, the Bible doesn't condone governmental overreach to balance everybody out that way. All right? That's, those are two different spheres. All right? I'm just going to alleviate the conversation that was bound to come up at some point. Uh, <laughs> but I want, I want to show you this coming into the New Testament. Okay? So look at our verse handout, Acts 2, 44-45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Pause right there. And, and this is not to disparage giving to the poor at all. The churches will do that eventually, and we'll see that in Acts. We won't see that tonight, but you do see that in Acts. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about within the church, any who had need. Okay? This is everybody selling what they have, giving to a communal fund in the church, and distributing equally among the people that had need inside the church. So essentially, the elders... They're bringing it to the feet of the apostles. Essentially, we see that in Acts 5. And they're, they're giving the proceeds from their sale of their property or whatever they have. And the elders are responsible for distributing that amongst the people that have need. So in, in our church where we would see that, where you kind of see that reflected, is in the member care fund. We have that that's available for you to give to any, any Sunday you wish or any day you wish. Uh, but you can give to that and Right now, I think there's a balance of like $2,000 in there. So as, as members of our church come in and have, you know, a, a problem, i got to put my stuff in storage, and I don't have money for a storage facility. That's where that money comes from, is out of the member care fund. That's how we do that, right? And so that's been going on for 2,000 years, and it turns out the Essenes were actually doing that before Jesus came, uh, even 100 years before Jesus came, all right? In addition to that, they did not buy or sell to other Essenes. But every one of them gives what he has to him who needs it and receives from him what may be convenient for himself. I have all, pretty much this whole worksheet, almost all of it, I've taken straight from Josephus. And I've just changed the words a little bit to make him more readable. But that's it. So he's essentially describing the Essenes as this, and he's kind of lifting them up as a group of people that are highly revered in Israel for what they did and how they lived. Look at Acts 4, 34 to 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, 
and it was distributed to each as any had need. All right. So here we see the Essenes actually doing this even years before Christ. Um, when Essenes traveled, they typically took few possessions with them because they depended upon the generosity of other Essenes to provide them food and lodging. So they're going and they're spread out throughout the land and so they know that in the cities that I'm going to, there are going to be other brothers and sisters, mostly brothers, to be honest, in the, those areas that are going to open their homes to me, they're going to feed me, and if they were in my area, I would do the same thing to them, right? Um, I want you to see, Matthew, it, it, really the whole purpose of going to back to the New Testament is to see, um, maybe give some shade on what uh, the apostles are doing here and what Jesus is actually talking about, and, and just kind of maybe put a better picture in your mind. Matthew 10, 9 to 11. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. What is Jesus telling his disciples there? Just, and you can feel free to answer. What is Jesus telling his disciples to do? Okay, don't take a suitcase. And what, what is it that they're doing? You remember the context of Matthew 10? What is it that they're, he's sending them out to do? Preach. This is where Jesus first sends them out two by two. 70 or 72, 70 disciples he sends out from town to town, two by two. And he says, don't take any tunics, don't take any gold, don't take any, any, don't take any money for your belt. Just go into the town. And he says, the laborer deserves his, his wages. What, what is, he, what is his, his exact words? The laborer deserves his food. What does that mean? Yeah. That you are laboring for the gospel. You're preaching the word of God in those towns and you actually deserve to be taken care of. So that, that kind of flips on the head this idea that like you need to be, if you don't work, you don't eat, right? That's obviously a, in the New Testament. If you don't work, you don't eat. But what Jesus is saying is the, what you're doing is work, all right? That's what he's defining it as. Sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel from town to town, that is work, that is labor, and you deserve your food, okay? So then what does he say next? He says, in whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. What is he talking about? Find out who is worthy in it. Okay. Sure. Sure. What does it, that's what I asked you. You are, you are so, you are, this is a Vicky answer right there. Vicky is the queen of restating what I just said and then asking me the question to get me to answer. <laughs> Like-minded, a Jesus follower. They're finding people that are responsive to the gospel. Okay, um, To me, this passage did not make sense until I saw it actually happen. And I, it's the weirdest stuff to watch this happen. You, 
you will probably, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say you'll probably never see it in Tuscaloosa. Okay? Probably. Now, I'm not going to say never, but like probably you will never experience it yourself in Tuscaloosa. I'm just guessing. Because you have a home here. <laughs> right? So, so even if you went sidewalk evangelizing, at the end of the day, you're going to go back to your home and you're going to sleep there. When we're walking into a village in China, this is that's the first time I ever, this verse ever came to mind, and I was like, I see it. I understand what he's talking about now. We're walking into this village, and we share the gospel. Eventually, we got the whole village is coming out, and they're all listening to this gospel presentation, and we're sharing it, and other people are going, oh, you got to listen to this, you got to listen to this, and th- there's a a generally favorable response, at least to the, to the story itself. At the end of it, obviously, there is an invitation of the gospel itself. Like, you need to, there's two ways to live, essentially. You need to figure out which, which path you want to follow. And the vast majority of people choose the path of least resistance, which means not, that means rejecting the gospel. Good story, not interested, and walk away. But, there are a number of people that hang around and they want to ask questions. And so the village leaves and there's this one lady and a couple of guys. A couple of guys are like, I believe that, but I don't live here. I'm going back home and I'm going to tell this to my village. So they leave. So it's basically us and this one woman. And she says to us, this is interesting. Will you come home? You can stay in my house. And, and I'm like, that's the strangest thing I've ever seen. What, what would happen to us if she had just walked away? This is a woman, by the way, surrounded by five big American men. A Chinese woman surrounded by five grown American men. She didn't have a husband at home. It was just, she could have gotten killed for all she knows. I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't know us from Adam. She invites us into her home. She goes out to her garden and plucks up potatoes from her garden, which, for all I know, might have been the only food she had. She shoves those potatoes in the fire. We sit there for like 40 minutes talking about the gospel with her. And sometimes in kind of awkward silence. But anyway, we sit there for a long time, and she's cooking these potatoes. She's going out to check on them. She's grabbing these potatoes with her bare hands in the fire. Like, just no nerves at all on her hand, calloused, and she just works all day. And brings in this stew and these potatoes and sits them before us. And then she just went over and sat in the corner. She literally just sat over there. And the missionary is telling us the tradition is when you invite somebody to your home, you feed them and you let them eat until they are full. And then when they are full, your family eats whatever is left. She is, the floors are made of dirt. She is absolute, she has nothing but these potatoes. And we had breakfast two hours ago, right? We're not hungry. But we eat, and we eat precious little, because we know this is all she's got. And then we get up, we're done, and we leave. But she would have been content for us to take her bed, for us to stay there in her house, 
for us to sleep and then get up the next morning and, and leave if we needed to, if we needed a house to stay in. So Jesus is basically telling the evangelists, the, the disciples, as they go, you will be taken care of in the villages where I will see to it that you are taken care of. And he's promising them that kind of protection, that kind of enduring protection. What I think is fascinating about the Essenes, and we're going to see this kind of unfold hopefully over the rest of this packet, but what, what is, is fascinating is there's these concepts that are already being built in to Judaism before Jesus even gets on the scene. You see that? That we've seen the Pharisees, we've seen the Sadducees, we know what role they're going to play in the New Testament. You don't hear the Essenes mentioned at all. And yet you see some of these same ideas brought forward in the church by the time the church begins kind of formulating in Acts and what the Spirit is actually driving them to. So what is actually going on with the Essenes? Is this just, you know, a group that just happened to have these crazy ideas in before Jesus even got there? They just stumbled upon them when really no Jew was living this way, really, up until that point? I don't know. Seems... Interesting to me. Although the Essenes did not condemn marriage in principle, it seems they preferred avoiding it. Now here comes a passage that a lot of us really struggle with, all right? 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. What? <laughs> and all the single people said? <laughs> Amen. Um, this is Paul, 1 Corinthians 7. He gives this little thing here. And most of the married people, married preachers and things like that, get to it and go, I mean, uh, well, there's Paul. Let's move on to set verse 9, right? Or verse 10, whatever. What, what does he mean? What, why? Yes. Paul goes on to say exactly that. That there is a certain... Um, need that a married person has tend to their family. Period. That takes time, and you know, obviously it's directed towards the Lord's, you know, towards the purpose that the Lord has for the family, and it's important, but it does take time. And for Paul, there is a wide mission field out there, and the harvest is plentiful, and the workers are few. That's true even to this day. And so Paul says, if the workers are few, then there is advantage in working the harvest to those who are not married. There is an inherent advantage because you have more time. I would say that may be even true for the, the retired person as well. And by that I mean the person who doesn't have a gainful employment. Let's put it that way anymore. Right? That, that there's advantage in that direction too. Uh, so, 
So his point is that you have more flexibility. For, for the Essenes, this is already baked into their culture. This is the exact reason, why, or part of the reason, why they say marriage has its own difficulty. It's not just that for them, that there is a mission field and a devotion to God in particular that's at stake, but occasionally you are tempted to marry people that may not see eye to eye with you, right? That there there are times where your marriage is edifying and rich and both people are growing together in the same direction. But there are other times where one spouse is going one way and another spouse is going another way, right? You see that? You know that, maybe, or you've experienced that maybe before. So, for the Essenes, they're saying, look, singularity, singular devotion to God is really good. And you should consider it. You should consider a lifetime of singleness. They didn't ban it altogether. They saw in his word that there was marriage and so they didn't ban it altogether. But instead what they would do is, because the question comes up, well, if, you're, if you don't marry, how likely is it that your group is going to grow? All right? Let's just say the Essenes didn't have the greatest children's ministry. Okay? Was it? You know, the, they didn't work building buildings for their babies. Okay? All right? Obviously. What they did do, though, was other Jews are beginning to look at the Essene community, like Josephus is, I think, and they're beginning to see the values that they're promoting and the degradation of Jewish society that's going on around them. So think about this as happening at the exact same time. You've got the Sadducees who are in control on this side, and they are leaning toward assimilating with pagan culture. And the, the law itself is kind of being compromised. And, you know... Faithfulness to God is kind of going out the window, right? As these political people battle against each other. And the Jewish people who are more favorable toward worship of God alone than their religious elites are, are looking over here at this community of the Essenes out there in the country going, you know, country living ain't all that bad, right? And these people out here seem to be much more connected to the Lord than the people in the city are. And so they're looking out there and they're going, what do I want for my kid? Do I want my kid growing up with me here in the city and learning from, you know, little old me who's learning from the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Or do I want them growing up with this, the Essenes out here in the wilderness and learning what faithfulness and devotion to God actually looks like? Can you understand the dilemma that a parent might be in? All right. So many of the parents decided to send them to private school. All right. Or maybe you might say homeschool, right? <laughs> so they send them out here to the Essenes, and the Essenes would essentially foster these kids by... It's hard to understand what was actually being described here. It's like taking these kids, and it seemed like a kind of a fostering relationship where they're sort of fostering these kids, teaching them their way of life, growing up and treating them as their own family. And so that was one aspect, is like actually taking kids from other people's families and fostering them and growing them up. Another was, a man might look out there at the Essenes and go, I think I want to be an Essene, and move out into the country, maybe even with his family. But any man who wished to join the group, now I want you to hear this, just, I want, I want, see if this sounds familiar, just at all, okay? Any man who wished to join the group was not immediately accepted, but required to submit to the Essene way of life for a year, 
yet to remain excluded from the community. So it wasn't a part of us, but he was sort of kind of on trial, I guess, for a year. After demonstrating that he could endure their rigorous lifestyle, which involved eating off the land and not, you know, that, a lot, there's a lot involved in that. He was allowed to come closer and be made a partaker of the waters of purification. So, so here's just a quick description of what we can surmise from the way that one entered their community and one maintained in their community is that they would ritually bathe very often. That was a sign of purification and a sign of their devotion and clean conscience before the Lord. Does that sound familiar at all? At all to anybody? It sounds a little bit like baptism, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit like... Okay, now I want to just take this one step further. This is why, these, two, these last two points are why many people think that John the Baptist was raised in the Essene community. Okay? This is where that theory comes from. And I would say, it's a theory. It's not in the Bible anywhere. Take it or leave it. I don't care. All right? But I would submit to you that it is an interesting point of curiosity. Here comes a man out of the wilderness whose parents were old, very old, when he was born. Which means they probably died when he was very young. Just a guess. We don't have that record anywhere, but probably died when he was very young. Where does he go? Maybe with a family member. There's no indication that Mary raised him. When they're adults, he and Jesus don't know each other really well. Like, he doesn't recognize Jesus. They probably never met as adults at all, right? Or even as kids at all. So, it doesn't seem that he was raised anywhere near Jesus' family at all, or maybe they would have run into each other once or twice. He comes out of the wilderness wearing camel hair and weird clothing and eating locusts and wild honey, meaning he doesn't feed off of anybody. He doesn't take food from anybody. He feeds off the land, whatever he's got, which is how the Essenes live. And he comes baptizing people through ritual waters of purification, which is distinct amongst the Essene community. He also declares faithfulness to God and repentance, which is big in the Essene community of how you enter the ritual waters of baptism. So, you can kind of see where that, that idea comes from, that he, when you think of Essenes, perhaps John the Baptist might be a good picture of what an Essene might look like in the first century. All right? Now, let's get combative for a second. Uh, <laughs> regarding free will, the Essenes attributed everything that happened in life to the will of God. Everything. They believed in predestination, that everything was predestined, and that humanity is divided into two, the children of light and the children of darkness. You are either one or the other. All right? So when you read something like Ephesians 1, 4-5, you get something like that. I mean, this is just one I picked. There's a multitude that I could, we could go to. But even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 
Essenes believed that people's souls would live on after they died. And therefore, they urged their members to work hard to earn the rewards of righteousness. In other words, you're going to stand before God on Judgment Day and you're going to have an account for your life. So Essenes, you need to work toward righteous living, in other words. And you might think, oh, that sounds like law and not gospel. Well, maybe not quite. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Do you not know that in a race all, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Is, is Paul there describing a lifestyle that would be I gain eternal life by how hard I work? Or is what he's saying, now that I am in Christ, I work hard because I know what I'm running to and I know what I'm running for. And in Christ, those who are in Christ, who have eternal life, now do gain rewards by their righteous living. Well, that's exactly what he's saying. And that, that's the whole premise of being in Christ. You're not gaining eternal life by your work. That's gained for you by Christ alone. But you are growing in righteousness and gaining rewards by righteous living, by being faithful with what He's given you. Um, bodies, they believed, were corruptible, and the matter they were made of was not permanent. But souls were immortal and lived on forever. In, now, that may sound like, well, well, the body goes away. I thought that was, you know, we're learning in the cult class. That, 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 that's kind of Gnosticism. No, no, no. Keep going. In the resurrection, Essenes expected souls to be united to their bodies. So 1 Corinthians 15.44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He doesn't mean a ghost. He means a body that is of a, another realm, a spiritual realm. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I tell you this, brothers, in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So their idea of the resurrection of the dead and the reuniting of body and soul and the body being made imperishable sounds eerily similar to what we're finding in 1 Corinthians. They spent much time in study and interpretation of the Torah and of the other sacred books, it means the rest of the books of the Old Testament, of which they took the greatest possible care. We see that in the Dead Sea Scrolls and them copying the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
All right, what kind of care did they take over these over the word of God? Well, let's so that's study and interpretation. During their uh, intensive studies of the scripture as a group, one member of the group would read the passage aloud to the others, and a more experienced brother would then explain the meaning of it. What does that sound like? Anything? Sounds kind of like a sermon, a little bit, maybe, or something we might do as a, a group on Sunday night, like, or Monday, or something like that. Um, they did not fear death, because if death was for their glory, they reasoned, then it was better than living. Sounds similar to something we find in Paul at the end of Romans 8. He says, And we know that for those who love God, he's talking about in the midst of suffering, by the way, this passage. I think it bears repeating that that's what he's talking about. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sounds like a very similar hope. Pre-Christ was given to the Essenes that we see there in Paul. During the revolt against Rome, which we'll talk about in uh, weeks to come, during the revolt against Rome, Essenes gave abundant evidence of what great souls they had in their trials. This is from Josephus. Though tortured and distorted, burnt and torn to pieces, they neither blasphemed nor flattered their tormentors and did not shed a tear, but they smiled in their pains and laughed to scorn those who inflicted the torments upon them. Similar to what we find in the Christians in Acts 5, 40-42, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ Jesus, that the Christ is Jesus. Um, so what do we make of all this? Oh, <laughs> the Essenes. Um, you know, it's interesting, and, and so 
again, like we don't have tons of material. We don't. But as you go through the explanation of what the Essenes believed, it sounds eerily similar to Christianity. The Essenes were seen in Jewish life as having an ideology that was most common with the Pharisees. And, and every disciple of Jesus just about would have grown up in the synagogues. The synagogues were controlled by the Pharisees. They would have, they would have been functionally a Pharisee. right? We see that even in Paul. Ideologically, the Pharisees and the, and the, Pharisees and the Essenes were similar in their approach to the reading of the Word of God and its study, right? That, that was, that we saw that with the Pharisees, and, and we do see that with the Essenes clearly. So it's not like they're leaps and bounds apart, but the difference was in their lifestyle and the way that they lived. All of the disciples of Jesus would have grown up under Pharisaical teaching, but I would guess, is this a guess? This is my own theory as I read through a lot of this, is probably as they come in contact with Christ and understand what His preaching and what the change of the gospel has done to their life, what the Spirit then drives them to as a Christian community, looks much more like the Essene way of life than the Pharisaical way of life. Pharisees and Sadducees tended to have more prosperity, tend to be more on the prosperous side of life, work through the government, things like that. Jesus comes in saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my people would have swords and they would be taking this castle by storm, but it's not of this world, so they're not. That's what he says to, essentially to Pilate. I think when they hear that preaching and they understand that, and they become indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what the Spirit drives them to is a way of life that they have witnessed a way of life that they've seen in this group of people who we don't have any record of them ever coming to Christ, right? But do we? Who is it that's there in Jerusalem that's hearing the preaching of the apostles that goes, yeah, that's the Messiah. That Jesus that you're preaching about, that's him. Who are those Jews that come to faith in Christ? I mean, I'm sure they're across the board. I'm sure there's maybe some Sadducees in the group. I'm sure there's some Pharisees in the group. I'm sure there's a whole smattering of a bunch of different people in Jewish life. There's clearly some zealots in there. We, we're going to talk about them next week, but th there's clearly some of them in there too. I would submit that a lot of them probably are some Essenes that are hearing the preaching of Jesus and they're going, that is the fulfillment of what we've been seeing in the Old Testament. That's true. So if that's the case, and, and let's at the very least say that when we look back at their way of living and the things that they did, that makes a lot of sense, and it, it kind of meshes with a lot of what we're seeing in the New Testament. So then let's go into the New Testament, and as we read these passages that are advocating for a certain way of life, well, let's then look around at the way we live, maybe. And, and maybe let's ask. What does our lifestyle look like? Just our way of living. I mean, I'm pointing at me. I ain't, I'm talking in the mirror, and then y'all can all just benefit if you, if you feel like it. But, but let's look at the way we live and say, what, is it, what does it look like? Does it look more lap of luxury? 
or does it look more essing, more Christian? What does it mean that they had all things in common, that no one had any need among them? Interesting. Questions? <laughs> there were several. Josephus, um, a couple others, plenty, a, co- a couple others that, that were historians that wrote about them. But they wrote about them, um, actually, hang on one second. Um, that last quote down there, during the revolt against Rome, that last paragraph, I think that's from Pliny the Elder, who is not a Christian, but was a Roman. Uh, he's a Roman historian. He's not a Christian or a Jew. And I, yeah, Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y. I think it's Pliny the Elder, I think was the one that wrote that. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I can look that up later, but I think he wrote that. And I, and I looked at that and I was like, wow, here's a guy who's living in Rome and is writing a history and he sees the Essenes out there and he's like, they're different. That's a different breed of people. Go ahead, David. <laughs> yeah, um, well, when you say part of the revolt, you, so um, this is the revolt against Rome. So this is coming in 70 AD. When Rome lashes out against Jerusalem, everybody died. Right? So we're going to see that in a few weeks, but when Rome comes in, to squash the sort of the pushback against Rome. Um, I th- the rumor is, and, and we don't obviously know for sure, I don't know that anybody does, but the rumor is it's a million people that die in Jerusalem. And um, so it's bad. So who gets torn up, burned, torn apart? Everybody. So... I don't think the Essenes, I don't, have any, any, I don't have any knowledge or any record of the Essenes being the ones carrying the swords going after the Romans, but everybody that's in and around Jerusalem is going to die. Yes. Yes. That, they were a different breed of people altogether in the way that they died. So, so I think that's, you know, I don't, I, I'm not trying to hold the Essenes up as saying this is Christian. Some of them, it seems, w- never, either never heard the gospel or never believed in Jesus or something. I don't, I don't know. And, and I don't have any records to point to to say, see, this many Essenes became Christians or anything like that or, or whatever. But I do think that a lot of the way of living of the Essenes is what the Christians are saying, yeah, that is the way we should be living as God's people. You know, I'm not advocating that we all knit together our, our own camel hair garments. I'm not saying that either. But I do think that there is a, there is a, a point to be made with the way that Acts unfold and the way the New Testament church is coming together. That, that's what, that is what they're advocating for, that we live on a lot less and even struggle a lot more and, you know, live in poverty to, to one degree or another. 
questions? I can see gears turning across the, across the <laughs> and wry smiles coming across people's faces. No. <laughs> yeah. All good? Okay. Uh, all right. I feel like there's a question coming from Bob Brooks. <laughs> I can't tell. <laughs> I'm holding out because I feel like it's coming. No? <laughs> all right. Well, I'll let it be then. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, and, and I, I pray that, um, that you would really bring, bring the wrestle to my own heart to really consider uh, the way that I live and the things that I consider beneficial and good and, and worthy of my time and attention and the things that I let go and the things that I don't pay attention to at all. Um, we certainly, as a people, want to live in accordance with your word and desire the things that you desire, live the way you would have us live. And even in a world where we're, we're very conscious of what retirement looks like in the world's eyes, what uh, wealth looks like in the world's eyes, what... Um, Healthcare in our old age looks like in our, I mean, all of those things we see as real issues that we have to tackle. And we, it, it becomes a challenge for us, admittedly, to balance your word and how much we should save and how much we should sock away and, and how we should live exactly in the richest country that's ever been in existence. So we don't have all those answers, and we pray that you would lead your people in the way that you, you want them to live. And I, and I pray that we would have that struggle in our heart continually, that we would wrestle over it and question it and really think deeply about it, not just dismiss it because it sounds crazy, but that we should actually bring it up in front of our, our minds, that your spirit would allow us to really wrestle through and, and, and think about the ways that we live and question those things. I pray that you would help us to do that and to do it rightly, where we don't see salvation by works, but we also see you having clear direction over our life and you being king over everything that we have from possessions to finances, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.